32 counties united by people my name is una and my name is andrea and this is united ireland every week on united ireland we go under the hood of issues in ireland beyond the headlines bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about. Case in point exactly today. Uh, this week, we're talking about how to turn eco-anxiety into eco-impairment. Turn that frown upside down. Uh, yes, the IPCC report issuing a code red for humanity um, happened this week, as did watching Greece literally on fire. Um, it's fucking scary. Um, and the only way out of this is through action. So we are talking to Dr. Paul Brahms about the realities of survival. Uh excellent person to talk about this and a right balance of hope and action and sturdy, scary info. So stay tuned. Now, oh, hi, Andrea. I didn't see you there. You look like you're lost. I don't know if I'm ready for this or else, but here we go. Yes, I'm just trying to find my way out of this maze of options. What maze? It's the invisible labyrinth of supports for independent podcasts. Oh, I know a way out. Step this way to Patreon, where you can support podcasts like ours for just three euro a month. Wow. Do you mean patreon.com forward slash United Ireland? Yes, that's it. Off you go. (laughs) (laughs) How was that for a Patreon plug? I mean, I feel like I feel like it's one of our worst. Maybe we'll be on stage yet. Maybe. Um, Take that, Dublin Theatre Festival, who just announced their great programme. Okay, we haven't asked this question in a while, Andrea. How are you feeling? I don't... It's a very hard question to answer at the moment, isn't it? I feel great. I'm feeling very optimistic, even... I... Do you know what I feel? I feel like I've spent so long kind of... This is a re- it's a very self. I feel very selfish. That's how I feel because I feel like I've spent so long working towards sh- making my life as small as possible so I can survive no matter what happens on a very small anything. So I feel very happy in my small world. Hmm, that makes sense. Interesting. Yeah, I think. <clears throat> Um, I, yeah, I want to I need to go up further on that because it's absolutely okay. bananas so as the world is actually burning and as it's very scary and like I feel like okay I've I've taken the actions to allow me to to contribute in a in a good way to bring down all my like outgoing not my outgoings like my things that Your I impact buy, my buy my impact mm. and that I can ex- like exist in this very small existence that doesn't need to consume very much, that doesn't need to buy things, that doesn't need to do anything, but it's a very happy space and that, and not just space, but space in my mind and that I've spent so long reprogramming my mind away from consumption and um, all that kind of and accumulation that it kind of feels like a very good place to be in, both in my mind and in my space. Mm. That's very interesting, yeah. That's a vibe. Yeah, I think that like one would feel more horrible about that report if you just booked like a rake of flights or something. Oh, right. I did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Not loud. Some. Not loud. Uh, Yeah, it's an interesting time, isn't it? Because um, I feel like uh, 
partly I feel with this stage of the pandemic is that I've actually been finding it quite difficult uh, mentally and emotionally. And I think it's because um, the decompression time that I realise that we all need collectively and individually to, to bridge or buffer the height of the pandemic restrictions and the quote unquote opening back up hasn't been made available. And so we're kind of being juddered into uh, this like, oh, I guess we'll just all go to dinner or this is a new thing or whatever without actually having the space between to decompress from the trauma of this time. And I think that it's going to be years until we actually uh, really unpack what's happened and the impact that it's had on us and how it broke our brains kind of. And it's it's can be quite discombobulating, I feel. I feel like everybody's, it's like everybody's walking around with this secret and like everybody knows what the secret is, but nobody is verbalizing it. And and the fact that, you know, these conversations and the media coverage about indoor dining or summer camps or communions or whatever. And it's like, but nobody's talking about what this actually has done to us mentally. And we're meant to just like, go back to normal. And I think that's not a good idea. I think people should try and carve out decompression time right now because I know my brain is a bit broken by things um, and alleviated slightly by the fact that I got my second vaccine this week, which when I got my first one, I just felt like quite fatalistic about it. I was like, what's the fucking point? Delta, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, obviously not in a very good place. But now I'm like, oh no, maybe it is positive. But I think I'm like, no, I'm not being juddered back into some kind of pace that feels unnatural and that actually short circuits my brain. Basically what I'm saying, if you're feeling like this moment is meant to be like positive and like getting back into things and that's not landing for you, I think that is a very normal state. Namaste. Okay, let's talk about state of the nation. <laughs> Andrea Horan, what is going on in this country we call Ireland? Um, well, first on the top of our list, well, I open it <laughs> with some good news. Yeah. Okay. I think the good news of Ireland this week has been Kelly Harrington's return, uh, the response to her win, her attitude, her optimism, her life, her blah, blah, blah. Wow, really, Andrea, you've gone to blah, blah, blah on Kelly Harrington? <laughs> Brilliant. She's so great. No, but how deadly was though? I went down to Portland Row for her um, homecoming and the absolute buzz. It was so life affirming. It was so beautiful. It was so brilliant. The energy. Yeah, just amazing. And uh, seeing her around the corner there, um, down onto Portland Row and just like the shot you could see the shock in her eyes and her mouth just like drops open and it it was just beautiful just beautiful 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 and I hope people you know with all this talk about community and stuff that people really understand that and why uh, shit development and shit planning and shit house and rent prices damages that and not to do that but obviously this government's not going to do that so the next one will maybe um, 
Yeah, I think the community aspect was very interesting. and But also, not to cast a shadow, it was like... It was a bit frustrating listening to the patronising tones of, of, like, middle-class people being, like, so... Like, oh my God, look at the... Look at how the people act. They're so nice. And, like, it's like... Like... It just showed up so many prejudices and so mm-hmm. ma- so m- many preconceived biases, and like you're just like, and at the same time, I kind of felt sorry for them in a way that it's like you you haven't experienced that sense of community and the his, hit the feeling of the history of it and the blah blah blah. God, I'm full of blah blah blah. Sorry, li- sorry, listeners. Um, but yeah, it was it was kind of frustrating, and then yeah, at the same time, I was like, you just don't get it. Yeah, I think I think you're right. It's that balance of of identifying um, identifying why and how something is good and necessary, and then also, you know, exactly as you say, like uh, <laughs> the safari aspect yeah. to it or something. Um, yeah, I think it's fascinating. Like I was talking to my mate Lynn uh, Rafferty, who who is from Summerhill, about it loads. Our mate, our no mine actually, <laughs> um, <laughs> our friend, and uh, yeah, just about that, like the difference in how I grew up, for example, in a middle class estate in Dean's Grange, where it, which is identified kind of as a quote unquote good place to grow up. And like, there was no community, there was no culture, cultural vacuum, like no sense of togetherness. Um, and yet that's perceived as somehow, yeah, quote unquote better, basically, mm. not even quote unquote, like that's how people talk about things. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, but I think what is worth identifying is and I think you said this on Twitter, Andrea, like that, that, you know, you know, now that everybody's realized community is a vibe, that should be at the core of things. And I was kind of writing about that in the Times on Monday as well, while trying not to be patronizing, um, which is hard when you when uh, you don't come from a particular place and you're and you're trying to identify its qualities. You can sound like a fucking sap. But at so the same time, you can see the difference. There was so many, there was like people down there, like you don't have to be from somewhere to get it. Mm-hmm. Like, but you could definitely see the difference of people who just got it. And then people are like, wow, like, and they're so nice. Like, they're yeah. not aliens. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's very othering, isn't it? Yeah. It's like that aspect of othering when you're actually being like, uh, tr- seeming to be positive, but you're actually just being really patronizing. Mm. Um. But yeah, fucking hell, Kelly Harrington. What a legend. I'm absolutely delighted. What else is going on? Safe zones. So I don't know if this is a bit of a flag flying exercise from Stephen Donnelly when he wasn't it was exposed, was it, that there was going to be no introduction of safe zones um, around abortion care providers. Um, Obviously, this is... uh, uh, rollback on a promise that was made during the um, agreements and during the referendum time by Simon Harris, which like it's three years ago and there's still no, and it was like we're definitely going to put these safe zones in. Um, and the, um, Stephen Donnelly's like, actually, we don't need them. Like we haven't really had that much 
tra- drama about it. And it's literally like, there's been drama there. It's happening. You need these safe zones. And until, um, women's healthcare and abortion care is included in healthcare as just across the board thing, as opposed to a specialist, um, item, they need to come into place. So it just was really disappointing to see the row back on it. Now there's been a, a re-row back and it's back on the agenda and he's committed to implementing them. But like three years later, babes, what's the story? Get, get your skates on. I mean, it's Stephen Donnelly. <laughs> how, how many times do I need to talk about this person's <laughs> podcast? Not today. Um, meanwhile, in um, Fine Gael, uh, Former Finnegal advisors, uh, what's going on with them? Uh, Killian Woods, uh, wonderfully, again, he's just the best, isn't he? Like, he is going to be on Byline this week. Oh my God, I will tune in. <laughs> uh, thanks. <laughs> hope so. <laughs> uh, he um, had a story in the Business Post um, saying that Finnegal advisors led the two ex-Finnegal advisors led the lobbying campaign that secured certain funds and exemption from stamp duty. And they had direct work, uh, experience working with the Department of Housing, right? Yeah, so it's literally like, like, okay, sir, sir, but, well, it's like we are issue with politicians and lobbying groups just jumping between the two is an, obviously an issue, but it's like, it's so frustrating because you're like, oh, for f-, like, you just read it and you're like, for fuck sake like literally so many people go here can we have it like fair can we like can we try and buy houses and all and then you've got them like actually we got made sure that these funds could didn't have to pay that stamp duty because it's for the good of the country fuck off you know lobbying is one of those things that i think there's going to start to be a massive um conversation about in ireland because obviously public scrutiny is at an all-time high that causes a lot of uh you know, difficulties for politicians who feel like they're getting, you know, trolled and, and unfairly targeted and all that kind of stuff. And transparency and accountability uh, are demands of, of the public. Lobbying is something that everybody has just decided is okay, that it's a thing, you know, historically that it's like, oh, this is fine. Vested interests can get a seat at the table and they can um, gain access and push um, politicians to do certain things. Politicians work on behalf of the people, but let's actually give these vested interests a much uh, greater greater buy-in and not only that let's create a pipeline between the people who actually work with government and then people who actually work with industry and, and organizations of vested interests and allow them to use their experience to get shit for you know business and industry and organizations and like it's it's just legalized corruption you know it, like that's that's basically what it is you know it's accepted um that you know uh, that this is just fine. Lobbying, you know, is an industry. It's a sector, but it is, it's rotten. You know, there's no two ways about it. And like, you could say, okay, well, there's good lobbying, you know, NGOs or charities, blah, blah, blah. It's like the fact that the government, uh, all governments, Irish government, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael in particular, um, really kind of only listen to representatives of vested interests rather than actually connect with the broader populace of what people want generally, compounds their disconnection to the electorate and it means it warps our sense of things. So like an interesting example of it, I think, in the pandemic, which a lot of people think is positive, is the um, the Restaurants Association of Ireland. And I mean, I'm basically like seeing Adrian Cummins in my dreams. Like he's so, he's so like <laughs> dominant across news and, and all that kind of stuff. And so you basically get this 
because the, the that vested interest is so elevated, you get this constant um, churn of, of articles about whether or not you can eat indoors or outdoors, blah, blah, blah. That is important. Hospitality has been through a tremendous amount. Loads of our friends working at Andrea, like we are fucking yeah. in their corner, you know. However, there is a disproportionality to that because you don't have the same, because it's all about who has the ear, who has uh, the best setup. You look at how the live music industry had to or- organize overnight. It didn't It didn't have very effective lobbying groups, apart from stuff like National Campaign for the Arts and so on. So it's just like, there has to be another system that is proportionate to what is relevant and important and what is what people need, not just like a business or an organization or a sector. So I think lobbying is going to, people are going to start going, oh my God, you know, um, with regards to this, a new culture of that demands transparency and accountability and gets mad about it not being present. That's the end of my rant. Please continue. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Um, the walrus and cork sitting in everyone's boats. That's your one. I, I just thought it's my only... The state of the nation. <laughs> that's my only contribution to the state of the nation. Look, I enjoy watching videos of the walrus haul himself out of the water into boats. You know, there's some person out there... It's weird that they call August the slow news month, isn't it? <laughs> you know, there's some guy being like... God damn it, get out of my boat. And it's like, did you ever think that you'd find yourself being like, oh, it's really annoying. I couldn't like go out of my boat today because there was a walrus in it. I just enjoy it. Anyway, <laughs> we'll move on. Uh, straight on to uh, Leo Vradker, um on the 6-1 news. So after all the silence from everyone over um, Marion Gate, Leo went on, decided to go on the 6-1 news. And I was kind of like, that's an interesting one to go on because it's very like you would expect it to be a lot newsier as opposed to inquisitive. But it was I, I found it to be an interesting uh, conversation. You had a very good point about it, though. Did I? Yeah. At the time? Yeah, it was. Uh, there's a question you would have asked. Oh, yeah. I just thought um, I, I thought that Leo Varka's quote um in, resp- in his first statement uh, in response to the event at the Marion was interesting because what he actually said was that he, I can't now, I can't remember the exact quote, so I'm sorry, but it was basically that he strives to um, adhere to public guidelines and he tries to, um, so it's not definitive. And obviously, you know, it's, it's hard to be definitive about these things um, because somebody could like take a photo of somebody standing, you know, oh, a half a meter away from someone else in a queue. I just thought it was an interesting, interesting quote, um, how it was framed by by him or whoever it was writing it on his behalf. And yeah, it just struck me like and, and on the back of that, if I was interviewing him, I would have asked him uh, how many, if he has and how many times has he in his own mind, like breach guidelines, let's say. Um, if that's how he's framing, like that it's an attempt rather than a definitive thing. Obviously, nothing can be definitive, la la. Um, I thought he was, it seemed quite, um, I thought he seemed quite uh, muted or nervous or something on the 6-1. I don't think he's having a very good time at the moment, um, considering uh, consequences of his actions, I suppose. Uh, and also that he managed to get Sinn Féin in there <laughs> in something that had absolutely nothing 
at all to do with them. Um, and finally, on our State of the Nation, live music still languishing in the Republic. There is uh, a lot of people crying out for just a plan, um, especially with all the activity that's going on in Belfast. There, Yeah, big up Belfast. Uh, Tom Jones was last night. Scooter sold out two nights in a row. Rage and I didn't get tickets. Um, but literally everyone's just bopping up to Belfast to go to gigs and then coming back while our, our industry is left to lie with absolutely nothing. And there was... Uh, there was a conversation, now I didn't go into it too much, but that supports were going to be given for 5,000 plus um, music events. It's like, but that's not the day-to-day um, that makes up gigs and where musicians are playing and venues like that have like small to medium events. Yeah. Kind of the day-to-day of the music industry. I think um, that's because the criteria of the live event working group thing set up in the department was only to look at licensed events. And obviously, mm-hmm. if you're having gigs yeah. in venues, you don't need a license. Yeah. But then the other thing was, obviously, uh, Electric Picnic didn't get their license when we'll be at ne- like nearly fully vaccinated. Uh, and Luke O'Neill came out with an, an article in the Irish Times of like, this is why it should go ahead. We need to start trusting the vaccines. Um. And if you're going to have an event that's outdoors that has everyone vaxxed and doing PCR tests, and like we need to have more structures in place to manage the pandemic as opposed to just being like, okay, we've done all the vaccines, that's it. It's like that was like so many people for so long have been saying you can't just rely on that. Like, why mm-hmm. do we not have the systems in place to allow life to continue around it? I mean, Ireland. <laughs> It's so frustrating though. We like we're we're clever people who make shit happen. Why is it not happening? Um, because our political class uh isn't as at the races as other people are. Okay. Right, okay, so now we're gonna talk the uh that terrifying um climate report, but also you know, some some good and practical and, and hopeful information uh as well. Next up. So this week, as you all know, the IPCC issued a stark, stark uh, warning in a generation of stark warnings. We're basically extremely screwed unless we enter a period of dramatic change, turn this burning, sinking ship around. And while the traditional focus on individualism can seem futile, where individual actions um, and the need for the biggest polluters to change basically undercuts their entire existence, which obviously means that they don't want to do anything. What is the way forward? Uh, we want to introduce you to Dr. Paul Behrens. He's an assistant professor in energy and environmental change at Leiden University. Last year, he published a really, really interesting book. It's really well worth reading. It's called The Best of Times, The Worst of Times, Futures from the Frontiers of Climate Science. And what's what I found really useful about it. Um, well, it's a bit of an emotional roller coaster in a way, but it has these um, alternating chapters that give the actual real uh, pessimistic outlook, which can be quite heavy and hopeful versions then or hopeful outlooks. It's full of really good information about the reality, but also brings us to a kind of a vital place of what can be done, what should be done, what has to be done. So we're delighted to have Paul with us to chat through the report and draw from his expertise to tell it to us straight. Hello, Paul. Hi, Una. Lovely to join you. Uh, okay, we've seen Greece burning. We've seen the Gulf Stream changing. The news about the uh, the uh, then the IPCC 
report comes out with a code red, what actually lies within it? Tell us it all so we don't have to read it all. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, we've done that for you, so you don't have to. Perfect, um, thank you. It, <laughs> it's, um, it, it's important to describe maybe what this report is and what this isn't. Uh, this is the first uh, report of the IPCC sort of uh, process of reports. Uh, so it doesn't describe the human impacts or even what can be done. So it sort of does strip out quite a bit of the sort of hopey stuff that we can actually, you know, what we can do in the future. And those reports will come in 2022. And this one is just about the physical climate. So what can we expect from temperatures, uh, from extreme weather events, uh, from glaciers, things like this. And it's a summary of the research. So that drip, drip, drip of articles that you see in the newspapers that come out week on week. This is the collation of all of that. And as I said, one really stark picture. Um, one important thing to note is that all countries have signed off on the summary for policymakers, the sort of uh, overarching documents. And so that really means that, you know, denial is less and less a thing anymore. I mean, we're, we're way past that, of course. Um, and what it found or what it said was that it is unequivocal that humans have warmed the climate. And that's quite unique language for the IPCC. Usually it's very cautious. It likes to use probabilities, uh, virtually certain, uh, likely, these sorts of things. It's very definitive language for the IPCC. And it also talks about established facts rather than, you know, it is very likely, et cetera. Et cetera. Um, it finds that every part of the planet is experiencing climate change uh, and, and, and all the bad stuff. Uh, so heat waves, uh, floods, uh, all, all sort of the extreme events that you might expect from climate change. But the past decade was the hottest in 125,000 years, and the carbon levels are at their highest in 2 million years. Uh, they also found that unprecedented extreme events will increase. So these are events which have no historical corollary. I mean, that's what unprecedented means, of course, but it means that while we can say perhaps that some areas will receive some amount of uh, rain, for example, in some uh, period, it's very difficult for us to know what that will look like in terms of flooding, um, in terms of impacts on, on humans. Uh, we'll have to wait for the next uh, IPCC report uh, to explore that a bit more. It also found that compound events will increase. So this is events where you get two extreme events at the same time, so a heat wave and a drought. And that's a situation where, you know, one plus one doesn't equal two. I mean, if you hit with two extreme events at the same time, it can be much worse than having those two events separately. Um, it found that there is a low chance uh, to limit temperature rise to 1.5 degrees. And the pathways that do uh, limit to 1.5 degrees uh, rely on carbon being sucked out of the atmosphere at huge levels in the second half of the century. Um, and it also narrowed the amount of warming we can expect uh, for the amount of carbon we emit. It actually removed the extremes. So it did discount the lower warming uh, uncertainty. So we probably won't get lucky and temperature rises will be uh, uh, higher than that, those lower bounds. But it also knocked off some of the higher bounds as well. So, you know, we're looking, you know, it, we're looking at sort of the solid sort of the area, the, the middle of the, of the projections. Finally, it also found that there are irreversible changes to glaciers and sea levels, uh, and sea levels will continue to rise for many centuries, even millennia, uh, even if uh, you know, we're able to get to net zero, but that we do control overall temperature. You know, the moment we get to net zero, it's very complicated, but all the basic uh, physics of the situation means that, in general, we stop the warming. 
um, but that there is a kind of a lot of uncertainty in terms of some of the large scale changes that we might see to the features of the planet. So there's a lot of uncertainty about how fast um, ice caps can destabilize, for example. Uh, there's a bit of uncertainty about how uh, the Gulf Stream, the, the current that brings uh, warm waters and, and sort of maintains the weather that we expect, how quickly that might destabilize. So while we can pretty much say that the temperatures will you know, stop rising as soon as we get to net zero, um, the world or the, the features of the planet will continue to change underneath that in irreversible and potentially difficult to predict ways. Um, so that, that's, that's kind of the summary and, and, and that's sort of the full, the full force of, of the report, as it were. Mm. If we're kind of locked into um, the facts of the damage that we've already done, uh, whether or not you know, we know what those outcomes will be down the line, um, as unpredictable as they are, although going in one di- solid direction at the moment, what actions do we have to actually call for, like, now, what are, what are the most important ones? Because these traditional individual actions, although if everybody did, did them, they were important, like things like recycling and things like that, they feel quite futile. So what do we need from government, basically, and industry? Yeah, so it's, it's important to... I should, I should say that every bit of warming still matters. So it's not like a cliff edge where, you know, everything changes and, it, you know, all, all chaos breaks loose. It's more like, you know, um, uh, it's, it's more like a gradual uh, shift to a different uh, system. And some of these tipping points, some, uh, we've been talking about some of these uncertainties, they play out sort of over many centuries. So the, sl- the, the faster we cut, uh, the slower the warm- warming and the more chance we get to adapt and the more chance uh, we get to cope with these, these changes that, that might unfold. In terms of what uh, governments have to do, um, is it, the difficult thing is trying to get ahead of this, you know, because by the time that we've uh, sort of really emitted that, that, that those emissions, it's very difficult to turn things around. Societies like, a, you know, an ocean liner, it takes a while for things to, uh, to move. And the difficulty really is, is that climate change is an everything problem. It's about the houses that we live in. Uh, we have to put so much insulation in, you know, heat pumps to fit. How we move around, uh, we have to move around sort of quietly, but with lower emissions, uh, fewer particulates in the air. You know, flying is incredibly hard to decarbonize. Uh, it's just one area uh, where we have to say, you know, perhaps we can't do as much of it in the future. Um, energy coming from renewables. Um, there's so much to build, install. There's a lot to do, even in food. You know, there was a report out, there's a paper out last year that showed that even if we sort the energy system out, if the food system continues its current trajectory, that's enough to break 1.5 degrees. Um, so we need to sort of change everything about the way in which we live our lives. Um, and that's going to need a lot of um, regulation. Uh, it's going to need a lot of policy intervention. Uh, and it's going to need society to be on board with that. So I think one of the most important things is that it's about sort of environmental justice and just transitions uh, so that we pe- keep people on board as we move through that. Um, so it needs all of the different areas of society uh, moving, civil society, law, finance, uh, politics, all moving in the same direction. And it needs to be embedded at every level of policy and at every level of the community. You talk about keeping people on board and as we move along this, but a lot of people are kind of hitting eco anxiety and eco despair where they're kind of like, oh, sure, look, 
it's fucked anyway. I'm just going to eat all the meat I can now because it's going to be gone soon. How do we turn that into eco empowerment? How do we like how do you how do you change people's like what they're expecting, I suppose? Or how to like go, well, we're gonna party on till it till we burn down essentially. <laughs> well, I think I think the hope addressing that sort of despair and nihilism is seeing where the hope seeing seeing what hopeful trends are actually happening around the world mm. and we have seen very very hopeful trends in uh, the way in which society is responding to this um you actually see sort of interesting feedbacks in the same way that we talk about climate feedbacks in in nature we're seeing interesting feedbacks within society so just to give you sort of like one example for if we, we don't sort of talk about law or legal uh, proceedings very much in climate science for example uh but climate science and legal uh, action has really a quite a close uh, link because the amount of litigation against entities has grown from just a handful of a decade ago to over a thousand around the world today. And this litigation feeds on one another. This is litigation against governments holding them to targets. It's litigation against car, uh, fossil fuel companies, against other environmentally damaging companies. And it feeds off one another. So documents that are exposed to the mendacious sort of approach of fossil fuels in America can be used in Europe. Um, and then further litigation can result. And science actually helps here because science can now attribute certain events to climate change. It used to be the case, you know, you sort of saw this sort of wishy-washy lines in newspapers that say, well, scientists can't say that this is climate change, the event, we would expect more events like this in the future. That's totally changed. Within days now, scientists can say this event would be virtually impossible without climate change. And what that means is this harm from this event is virtually impossible without climate change. And that harm came from the carbon emissions. And so there's these interesting feedbacks. That's just one feedback in law, but we see feedbacks in renewable energy now. It's, for example, it's cheaper. New renewable energy is cheaper than existing coal and fossil fuels in large areas of the world. And all around the world by 2030 will be cheaper than existing coal and fossil fuels. And so we've seen ways in which we've been taken off guard about how quick we can move. Um, we just need to move so much faster. And it turns out that nature isn't necessarily playing ball in terms of doing of, of, of resulting in lower uh, warming uh, that we hoped for. Where mm. is nature? <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're talking about the different, um, the hopeful aspects like the league, like certain legal cases and obviously that massive ruling against various fossil fuel uh, companies and then people might identify like really interesting or hopeful um, developments in different kinds of farming or agriculture and, and or specific projects that offer hope. But is there any country or state jurisdiction out there doing things correctly that we that potentially people could learn from? Because I think that a lot of governments generally are reactive um, they tend not to be focused on the big picture unless, you know, they're like a dictatorship or something. And they tend to, um, you know, they're just fo focused on, on on getting elected, really. And, and they tend not to be uh, very qualified for the roles that they're in. It's quite, quite a unique uh, space, actually, um, electoral politics in that in that regard. And so when there's not a good example, they tend to kind of flail. But is there anywhere out there that it's like, actually, let's look at what they're doing and take that on? 
I think there are examples of transitions in sectors, but mm. perhaps not overall. You know, there are examples of some countries that have done very well with their, you know, electricity sector. Uh, you know, everybody talks about, say, Norway or New Zealand. It's not really very fair because they've got amazing uh, hydropower resources. But, you know, look at Germany, for example, you know, uh, inching up and up and up above 40 percent renewables in the electricity sector. It's a big country. It doesn't have great resources compared to some of the more sunnier and windier and, and more hydro places. So, you know, and it has a, really- a lot of lot of industry. And it has a lot of industry, you know, exactly. So it's, you, are, you are actually saying, you know, wow, that is actually quite impressive that they're able to do that. Um, you know, you see uh, other regions uh, which are potentially sort of doing better from a well-being perspective. I mean, Vietnam often comes up quite highly in terms of how much energy and, and, and sort of environmental pressures uh, that country, uh, you know, puts on the planet compared to how well off they are as, as a society, uh, uh, you know, in terms of health and, uh, and lifespan and, and these sorts of things. So there are areas to look, but there's no, you know, one country that, you know, is, is able to say this is the one, this is how we do it, uh, because we're actually just sort of groping towards that as a global society. It's just sort of working towards that, and of course, you know, you're fighting a lot of the global trends in in, in trade, uh, in you know, in uh, diplomacy, in the ways in which uh, resource extraction works and, and moves from one place to another. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think we can look for specific examples, but I don't think we can do much more than that. Mm. Uh, yeah, Pascal Donahue came out and said that they were going to keep rising uh, carbon taxes. Um, and obviously that feels like a very capitalist solution to a capitalist a problem that was caused by capitalism. Is there any good to be taken out of that? Or are we literally going to be like, ah, oh, shut up, Pascal, that's good. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think carbon taxes are uh, an absolute necessity. Um, I, I, I understand the issue, you know, talking about this is a very capitalist solution, but we are in the situation, we're in the system that we are now, and we need to make re- drastic uh, reductions in the next 10 years, whilst keeping people's lights on, whilst keeping the services for people, uh, whilst supplying energy services, food, all these sorts of different things. And it's going to be very difficult to do that without instruments like uh, carbon taxes. And there is actually quite a lot of hope that carbon taxes would restructure the global economy in that way. There's been some really interesting um, developments recently. For example, the EU emissions trading scheme is now trading at the highest it's ever traded. It's above 50 euros per tonne. Uh, a lot of people think it needs to be you know, 10 times, 20 times higher than that, but that's higher than it's ever been in history. Um, to put that in perspective, that's about 60 euros extra for a transatlantic flight from Dublin to, to, to New York. Um, but if you wanted to draw that down mechanically from the atmosphere, that would cost 900 euros. So that's where the sort of the, the difference is. But one of the sort of interesting things this year is that the Chinese have brought in a carbon uh, market as well. Uh, and that what we start to see is that countries are starting to, in a patchwork of, of different carbon markets, coming together. And the EU this year is going to bring in a carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is sound, it's a bit policy, but policy wonky. But what's going to happen is the EU will levy uh, import fees on the carbon embodied in imported goods. So if you right. produce steel in China, uh, you're going to have to pay the extra emissions than you, if you would have done, produced that steel potentially with greener technology in Europe. And the Chinese have been upset about this. Now, Chinese researchers have said, actually, this wouldn't make much of a difference after the first two years. But obviously, there's lots of geopolitics here. But what you're starting to then see is it would be in China's interest then to put on a carbon price that's sort of commensurate with the 
EU price. And then suddenly you're talking at a global market for, 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 for carbon. Um, and yeah, I, I totally get the concerns about, uh, you know, the capitalism, the way, the way in which this could operate, but it's an absolute necessity if we're going to internalize, you know, essentially at the moment, we're just chucking our waste into the atmosphere, uh, all the CO2 into the atmosphere. Nobody's around to find us or even wag, our, wag, wag their fingers at us. Um, and so that's going to need to happen at some stage. What kind of timeline do we need for the social and political changes that we have to enact? What are we looking at? What is ideal? Yeah, so as fast as societally possible. Um, if we want to, it depends on the target you're talking about. If, you, if, you, if you're wanting to talk about 1.5 degrees, we need to see sustained reductions that we saw during the height of the pandemic year on year. Uh, so you're talking... You're talking around nine to twelve percent reductions year on year for one point five degrees. If you are looking at two degrees, things get much easier. I say much easier in inverted commas because it's still it's still like four to five percent reductions, which is still historically uh, unprecedented. Um, so that's what we need for those targets. And so if you if you start from the position that you want to meet those targets, then working backwards, you have to say, well, actually, it's not good enough anymore to make a slow sort of techno optimistic transition uh, from where we are now to the future. It's just not going to go fast enough. So then you're into the world of starting to look at, well, what what do, what areas, do, what sectors of society do we need to get rid of? Like you said, you know, obviously fossil fuels, but also things like uh, aviation, you know? Uh, what are the areas... Uh, do we need to change around, say, buildings? Uh, you know, perhaps we need to have smaller uh, living spaces so that more people can uh, live with fewer materials and the emissions from those, we save those material emissions. You're starting to talk about all sorts of different types of consumption changes and encouragement for consumption changes. Um, a lot of people talk, you know, about growth. Uh, I, I think degrowth is very interesting. I think a growth is even more interesting. Like, let's just not care about economic growth. Let's just not bother. Uh, let's not measure the world in GDP. Let's measure it in more broader um, uh, metrics. And let's not be focused on just even one metric. Let's talk about biodiversity, climate change, uh, welfare, these sorts of things. Um, so that's what's going to need to happen. And, and, and structurally, that's why I think, you know, things like carbon taxes, things like the ways in which central banks sort of rate assets is really important because it sort of, un it really changes the flows of capital. And we are stuck with those flows of capital for at least, you know, the next decade or so. It's going to take a long time uh, to move away from that to sort of other, other systems, I think. How do we stop the emissions from the mouths of tech people about ridiculous ideas <laughs> to decarbonate things or stop it? Or is that something that you're into? You know, like, it's kind of stuff. Oh, we we could just put a giant mirror to reflect, or we can start pumping things out of like like a massive vacuum cleaner that sucks things out or whatever. I'm just like, stop trying to design your way out of, or out of this by like building massive machines and just maybe get off your private jet for a second. It is, it is awful. It is really awful because it's a real symptom of one of the issues that we have, which is the, is the inequality. Uh, I mean, you'll have seen reports about you know, 50% of the total emissions coming from 10% of the population. You know, that goes up and up and up the smaller you get in terms of the 1%, you know. And these solutions that they're talking about, you know, they, one of the problems with studying this sort of work is, 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 is that 
they're kind of self-fulfilling. You know, the longer that you delay, the more and more you need to come up with sort of magic uh, solutions. And I say magic sort of flippantly. I mean, they are possible. It's just the assumptions that you need to make in order to allow that to happen are intense. They're, they're huge. The IPCC report that came out on Monday suggested that for 1.5 degrees, for the lower ones, you would need about 20 gigatons of CO2 withdrawal per year by 2100. And that doesn't mean very much unless you then realize that using machines, uh, that's twice the size of Ireland covered in machines. Holy shit. For, for bringing that out. Um, and that's, that's using machines that are efficient. Uh, if you were to use bioenergy carbon capture, so you were going to grow uh, forests, uh, you'd need twice the size of the EU. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's for the birds, you know. Um, now, you know, having said that, we are at a stage where we probably do need some sort of mechanical withdrawing of CO2. I mean, that's nuts to say, but, it, you know, we're, we're, we're at emergency stations, you know, and um, so how do we get them to stop? Um, don't listen to them. <laughs> Correct everything that's wrong with social media and, uh, and the way in which we sort of uh, give voice to, uh, to, to interested parties. And um, this is why climate change is such a, such a difficult um, area to address is that, you know, it's, it intersects with so many different other areas and other things that are going wrong in society, uh, inequalities, but also, you know, who gets a say. Um, I mean, if the people who aren't at most risk aren't, you know, uh, being heard, uh, then of course we're going to drag our feet. And these people aren't at any risk. They're flying off into space. They've got their bunkers in New Zealand or whatever. I mean, again, I'm being a bit flippant, but you know, it's not too far off. There's plenty of rich people who have got their bunkers in uh, New Zealand now. Um, and they're sort of defecting from society. Uh, and we can't allow that to happen. And I, you know, it, the indignation has to sort of rise amongst you know, societies and to not allow that to happen. They can't do that. Before we end on something that's more positive and revolutionary, if we don't do anything, what does the end of the world look like, I suppose? Is it an ice age? Is it like how, what, where is the end point of what's going to happen? I know you can't predict that, but what, just imagine. If we don't do anything for, uh, to address climate change or um, in terms of geologically. <laughs> to address it, just like, I suppose, what is, like, it feels like, does the world just go on fire? Does, do we get another ice age? Do um, we all die out? Do, do we go chasing seeds, like, in those, feel, like, it just feels like, where it, does it go? Okay, so that's an unfair question. Yeah, I yeah, no, no, I, no. I want to see the end, what the possibility of the end of the world is. It, it's a good question. It, the thing is, we have managed to avoid some of the worst case scenarios that scientists came up with decades ago. So there was this scenario where scientists said, well, we'll model what happens if we just continue to use coal just ridiculously and everybody else uses coal and we have massive expansions in wealth in Asia, in Africa, and, you know, in, in, and we just use coal for all of that. We push the climate system as fast as we possibly can and we see where we get to. And, you know, that you're talking sort of four, well, you're talking sort of six six degrees, five, six degrees by the end of the century. We have avoided that. So even if we don't do anything from this point on, uh, as long as we don't reverse course, we have avoided that. My, my, my concern is, is that we're currently aiming for 2.7 to 3.6 degrees by 2100. And even by the time that you get sort of to two degrees, I'm concerned about society's ability to cope because mm. we're already sort of starting to see stresses, quite significant stresses at 1.2 degrees. And, you know, everybody's talking about 1.5, but things are going to get worse. So that would be my concern. Um, 
So to maybe flip it to sort of a more hopeful note is that we have managed to avoid the upper limits and every single 0.1 of a degree we can limit in the future limits the stress that societies are going to have. You know, in the worst case scenarios, in the worst case scenarios, you basically say, well, you know, society is self-limiting. I mean, if we really do push ourselves too much in, in these emissions and we, the temperature gets too high, we, the sort of economic structures will fall apart and we won't be able to push emissions that very high because we'll see large scale, you know, um, multi breadbasket failures, uh, issues with water. I mean, you know, I, I hate to leave the podcast too scary, but, you know, multi breadbasket failures, you know, where you have failures in major crops uh, across the world at the same time, so that, you know, you see one year really drop in sort of food production, the probabilities of that are really going to increase rapidly as we move to two degrees. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's conceivable that you would get uh, supermarket shelves being patchy towards the middle end of the century if we sort of move, still move towards uh, some of the sort of higher range of the scenarios in terms of the emissions. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I don't want to get too gory because I think I also think kind of, you know, what's, what's the point? We know we need this hopeful future. We know this hopeful future is actually better for us. It feels much, much, uh, it feels very despairing right now. Um, but um, hope is one of those things that you can hold on to through, through that despair. And when we look at what we need to do, as I say, it's a much better future. It's such cleaner air. It's fewer deaths from air pollution. It's fewer deaths from bad uh, food. Uh, it, it, I, there's so many, it's easy, maybe even easing, easing of uh, geopolitical tensions, you know, when fossil fuels are phased out and we have more distributed energy, it's more community-based uh, resilience, more community-based energy and food production. Um, it's better social connections. It's looking after people so that we can strip away this connection between work and consumption. So things like universal basic income and universal basic services. Uh, so that, you know, we're not saying, you, you know, you mustn't consume, but, you know, there's no need to uh, consume as much. So it's all these sorts of things that I think we need to keep that hopeful vision in, in mind, even as some of the effects of climate change continue to get worse and, and, and more and more scary. And you will see this as uh, feedback. Sorry, one more thing. You will see this feedback in the world. Every year, it seems like, I don't know whether you've noticed too, there's more appreciation across the broader swathes of society that there's something deeply wrong. And every year it gets worse and every year the targets get tighter and nearer. And yes, you can say a lot of it is greenwashing. Yes, you can say a lot of it is nonsense. But there's research that suggests that even just the discussion of faster targets changes the outlooks in civil society. And, and we will see this continue to accelerate. So while nature is moving faster in terms of the impacts, as we thought, we are also moving faster than we thought, too. Um, not trying to twist it into a uh, into sort of just some sort of uh, blase panglossian you know optimism at the end. I'm, I'm deeply deeply worried, and I think even under some of those optimistic scenarios, we've got a lot of suffering ahead of us. Um, but if we can just keep focusing on what can be done and also how we can also engage. So we need millions of climate activists, millions of people with all of their different skills getting involved. No matter where you work, if you're not already talking about climate change, you should be. Um, you know, it's not about keep cups and greenwashing and plastic. People talk about, you know, collecting plastics. It's not about that. It's about changing the entire system so that we actually reduce our overall pressures uh, on the planet. And so the more people you get talking about that, the more, the more hopeful you can get. 
Perfect. So we'll leave on a moment of hope in a burning world. <laughs> Thank you so much, Paul. And, and as we said at the top, like really recommend the best of times, the worst of times, futures from the frontiers of climate science. If you really want to understand the reality and also, as Paul was saying, the hopeful aspect that we're hopefully um, going towards now. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. What's getting in the sea this week? Oh God, again, I've loads of things to get in the sea. I'll, I'll fly through them though. First up, the, like, okay, I'm going to start it with, I respect people trying to come up with ideas to do things and to try and make the world a better place and heal the world, to make it a better place, all that. But it's just a bit like annoying when you see Cork bringing out these robot air cleaners onto the street and they suck the CO2 out of the air and they're like built machines. And they were, they're, they were criticized, Cork City Council were criticized. They're like, hey guys, we're not just doing the, the robot air cleaners. We're also, it's also part of our tree strategy as well. We're going to have more trees. But there's a lot more benefits to trees than air cleaners. So obviously you have shading from trees you have nature you have they look better you don't have to make them you don't have to make machines out of them um it's just a bit bananas that needs to get in the sea you're looking very perplexed you know i i missed i missed the air cleaner thing okay well robot air cleaners i'm it's a no from me also mm-hmm. a no from me is i can't believe that's a sentence <laughs> robot air cleaners it's a no from me and obviously like they obviously <laughs> Sorry, they obviously do something, right? They do t- they they do their job and take CO two out of the air. Fine. Also, like cost CO like how much does CO two does it cost to fucking build to these things? Yeah, and to import them and to ship them and blah blah blah. But maybe maybe instead of looking at how we take CO two out of the air, we maybe start implementing more things that stop create putting CO two into the air. Aha! You've hit on something smart there, Andrea. <laughs> Banana town. Speaking of CO2 in the air, I'm treading carefully on this point. It's the obsession with cars, especially in Dublin City. And there was an interesting article this week entitled Wealthy Shoppers Deterred from Dublin City, um, says a business group. Um, it was an interesting article. You can find it on the internet. Um, and Olivia Kelly, I think, in the, in the Irish Times. Yeah. Yes. Um and it was all about like nobody can pull up onto the footpath to collect their granny anymore and um we need more parking and cars are very important and personal transport is this huge development we can't turn our back on the development of the past when you look at the fact that transport is responsible for 40 percent of co2 in ireland crazy that's, that's nearly half when, how you can get to the place of mind that is like we need to get more people in to buy more because they've more money and that doesn't even take into account that actually that's uh not a true reflection that people who drive into town spend more money so 
apart from it being elitist and classist and all of those things, it's actually selfish and it's not for the good of the city. And if we concentrate on providing better transport links and creating a better city that has more um, facilities and amenities that allow a cross section of society, including older people with more seats, uh, better paving paths that aren't absolutely in bits, that you will trip and fall on and accessibility for disabled people instead of just reverting to type and demanding more cars. I think it would be a much better solution. Totally. <clears throat> I just think they should get all the fucking cars out of the city. Just make the entire place pedestrianized. Be I, like a leader of the world. I love that. And some one of the conversations that the fight back was like, like, look what super shopping centers in the suburbs are providing. It's exactly what people want. They've like all these car parks and easy access to the shops. I was like, that's you're basically talking about a pedestrianized city with parking facilities around the the, the peripheries. So yeah, yeah stunning. Yeah, you're not like driving through the Dunderum shopping centre, <laughs> opening your door at H&M or whatever's left. What uh, else is getting in the sea? God, you've mu- mucho, mucho uh, sea getting inners this week. Mucho sea getting inners. Finally, the discourse around therapists and conversion therapy. Um, again, it was it was in an article and I'm cognizant, I'm careful of these things because Obviously, there was. It felt like there was a huge anti-vax movement, and then when you look at the figures of people who are getting vaccinated versus who aren't, um, it feels like the and oh god, this is not a shock. Feels like we're amplifying the voices of these uh, people. So I'm cautiously not trying to amplify this story. What I will say is, conversion therapy is not a winner. I think we all need to get behind uh, making that outlawed for everyone and um, trans rights are human rights this is conversion therapy around um sexuality and gender right yes um so that's all i'm going to say about it so i think the p- the therapists who are coming together saying but we need conversion therapy they can get in the sea maybe if we had conversion therapy to convert people away from being saps <gasps> oh my god let's start a business <laughs> <laughs> now it's time for it's bananas Um, five times better than the average. It's bananas. What's bananas? Uh, okay, so it's related to our main episode. It's about the IPCC, IPCC report, kind of. But on the day it came out, um, a five-year planning permission extension was granted to Apple for a data center in Athenry. Um, they are selling on the plot because they had too many people objecting and it was becoming too annoying. So they're selling it on. Not too annoying. I'd say it's like, does our brand need this now? We've got the five-year planning permission extension, but like how are we in the position that we're giving a five-year planning permission extension to a data center when literally it's a, it, it's on the same day as the IPCC report? Um, but it also is part of a bigger thing that the regulator is fretting that the growth of these power-hungry facilities may spark rolling blackouts if the current system for connecting data centers to the grid isn't changed. So these data centers are obviously taking all our electricity and we're starting to get blackouts now, electricity blackouts. Um, one happened the other day, 
but I think it's going to be like more and more. And that line comes from an article I was reading in the Irish Times about there's a new big tech lobbying coalition against curbing data centers. So it's called Cloud Infrastructure Ireland. So they've all come together to be like, hey, government, let's not stop these data centers. They're very uh, sexy and good and you make lots of money. Uh, give us more data centers. Don't listen to those silly, silly people who are like, nah, data centers are not cool. Uh, Social Democrats actually launched a call, uh, Jennifer Whitmore Jen, uh, called for data centers, a halt to data center planning permissions, etc. Um Good. Also, just on that lobbying tip, like Michael McCarthy is the director of Cloud Infrastructure Ireland. Um, he was a he was a TD and a senator for years, you know. So there you go. There's the other kind of pipeline kind of coming through there. Uh, so yeah, that is absolutely bananas to me, and it's at the same time now. I actually got myself in a tizzy when it looked like the state were going to try and buy its way out of the climate crisis. Literally, like, how can you be saying you're going to like buy your way out when you're literally like, hey, big data centers, come in and give us some money, but then we'll use that money to then say, let's not have, oh God, it's, it's, it's like that circle. What's that? It's a vicious circle. That's what it is. It's a vicious circle. And do you know what else it is? It's absolutely bananas. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that, Andrea. And now it's time for your fave bits, which are always my fave bits as well. And I'm going to try and get all my fave bits in today so you don't get onto your second one. I'm like, oh my God, why didn't I tell you my other fave bit? So today I'm going to be very considered in my fave bits. First of all, I went to Taylor Park. My first time, like, it's absolutely a phenomenal roller coaster, isn't it? I know I'm a bit late to the party. How long is it around 10 years? Do you like roller coasters? It, you know, it's. Are you asking that question knowing my history with roller coasters? Do I know your history with roller coasters? So I have a phobia of roller coasters, <laughs> and um, I actually once got hypnosis to try and cure me of the phobia. Um, and it was for an article, and then uh, the hypnosis kind of worked, but then the paper sent me up to uh, is it in Port Ro- Banger, Port Rush to or a um to go on a roller coaster then. And um, I was like, yeah, this definitely worked, blah, 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 get on the roller coaster. And now when you actually look at the roller coaster, it's tiny. But for me, it was like going to space. And I just remember like going down one of the dip parts and like the noises that were coming out of my mouth, like it was like a cow giving birth or something. And the photographer who was there, uh, he was really nice uh, freelance photographer and, and she was just, I got off the roller coaster just like basically about to have a panic attack. She was like, oh, look, I didn't get the shot. I had to go on the roller coaster t- three times, <laughs> each more traumatic than the last. The so no, Andrea, I don't like roller coasters. Oh my God. Well, I had the best day in Taylor Park. The roller coaster was an absolute buzz, but also the falconry section, all the birds. Oh my God. Nature strikes again. Um, another part of my favorite bit has been watching people um, around the world clubbing. So my friends are literally in Berlin, Croatia. Sunil was playing in fabric. Uh, Belfast was having the time of its life. Uh, but yeah, Glitterbox in Croatia, it was like, it was so heartbreaking. Uh, I kept watching the videos over and over again. My, uh, somebody was like, can you just stop now? Like it's actually, you're self-harming watching it. I'm like, I'm really enjoying it. You're not enjoying it. I was like, oh, okay, fine. Um, but 
while it is upsetting, it is hopeful because people are clubbing. Clubbing will return. They're like, it is going to happen. And I just held that in my heart. Mm -hmm. Speaking of my heart, the heart of Saturday night. Oh, that was a beautiful link. Stunning. Really getting into this broadcasting with stuff now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The heart of Saturday night. Like, it's just brilliant to see it in a primetime slot on a Saturday night watching so many uh, amazing artists that from Ireland doing their thing. It's like absolutely whoop out of it. It's so good, isn't it? It's so brilliant. I um, was watching it at the week. The Damien Dempsey, Phelan Drew, Saint Sister, Mary Wallopers, and Una Healy and Lowe are such great presenters as well. So nice to have musicians presenting a music show. Hmm. Yeah, it's so, it's so lovely. It's brilliant. Also, like obviously we all know this anyway, but I ju- uh, just to reaffirm how much of a fave bit it is, is the fact that the Lewis is free. What? <laughs> as you can, as you may know, Andre, I'm not engaging with news or social media for a while now. The best thing that has ever happened in the world happened on the internet this weekend. Carl Kinsler started uh, did a tweet and he's like, I'm going to start a misinformation campaign that the Lewis is free so that if so many people think the Lewis is free, everyone starts getting on the Lewis and it's fr- and thinking it's free and then they can't sue us all. So this whole, then people really got onto it. And then there was like memes aplenty. Literally every single person in the world was coming out with going, God, it's so great the Lewis is free. Then Sally from the Lewis is like, you will need a ticket for the Lewis. Sally and everyone's like don't mind Sally she's only joking and then people, <laughs> people will be putting up pictures of like a Lewis ticket going I saw this on the ground what the hell is it <laughs> and like changing everything um to like a free Willie poster became the free Lewis and the Lewis was where the whale was <laughs> it is the best like, oh my god it was just don't you know sometimes you're like this is what the internet was invented for this is mm. this is worth the data center nothing right <laughs> Not really. <laughs> not really. Not really. Not really. <laughs> it was. Just, uh, I would like. I'll send. I'll send you on something. I'm kind of liking my disengaged life, but I I enjoy hearing um, meme culture secondhand through you as well. Okay, perfect. Uh, I am also disengaging slightly in my mind. Maybe I haven't done it yet, but I will. Uh, okay, that's a cool story. I'll, I'll let my free flowing thoughts maybe stop. Um, and the last thing is the War Memorial Gardens. I have never been to them. What? I know. It's been like, and I'm going to the Cliffs of Moher this weekend in Sligo. <laughs> in Cliffs of Moher in Donegal. <laughs> yeah, very much looking forward to that trip to Sligo. Um, <laughs> but it's just banana town how the War Memorial Gardens is like going back to ancient Rome or something. It's like, am I in the Acropolis or am I, where am I? It's just, it's just brilliant. They're gorgeous. Now, gorgeous. there's a few issues with the fact of how the structural gardening really is not um, representative of Ireland and how we moved away from rewilding and tried to control nature in this format. But that's another day's story. I think Actually, we st- might do an episode on that. Cool, yeah. Um, I think there's still a space for, you know, highly landscaped and designed um, gardening along with all of the other buzzes. Well, we'll have this conversation. In okay, okay. Um, so my fave bits. Uh, uh, there's no book of the week this week. Um, and it's because I've been spending a lot of time not reading. 
So um, I'm starting, I'm actually starting a new book today. So I'll do that next week. Uh, but the reason for that is that I've been uh, watching a lot of films and stuff. Um, I went to see Summer of Soul, the Questlove documentary about the Harlem Culture Festival that happened in 1969. It is absolutely fantastic. Um, if you're a fan of concert films, if you're a fan of music and humanity, uh, go see it. The oh, performer after performer and the cultural significance of it and how it was erased, even though Woodstock was so elevated, obviously because of racism. Um, it, it's it's really, really beautiful. I, it, it's so hopeful and gorgeous. I'd really recommend it. I also finally went to see Nomadland uh, in the Lighthouse Cinema. Again, devastating uh, meaning of life vibes. Uh, very good for now, I think. Um, beautiful film. Uh, obviously, everybody knows that, but it took me a while to, to get to see it because I wanted to see it in the cinema. Um, the I watched, totally binged, um, and quite appropriately so, I suppose, uh, Cocaine Cowboys, the Netflix documentary on Sal Magluda and uh, the other guy, I've forgotten his name, the, the two lads, or Willie... Can't remember his surname. Uh, the two guys who were big Coke barons in Miami. Um, it's fun, Doc. If you want something binge worthy, and you've watched all okay, of fun, you've watched all of Narcos. It's good. It's um, it's good crack. <laughs> um, my other favorite is. Oh, you liked that one, Andrea. My other favorite is the Dublin Theatre Festival has announced its program. United Ireland recommends Once Before I Go by Philly McMahon at the gate. Get booking. Uh, always love the theatre festival. Uh, check out the program there. There's loads of stuff IRL. And Festival Watch, do, 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 do. that's Festival Watch uh, theme music that I've just invented. <laughs> um, actually, Andrew, can you put some Festival Watch theme music in there? He's going to love that. <laughs> Festival Watch. It Takes a Village. Uh, it Takes a Village is um, a festival in Trebalgan in Mighty Cork. Uh, it's happening uh, 17th to 19th of September. But you see, the good thing about this one now is that you're staying in a holiday village. So you get to do your whole self-catering vibe. Mm. And um, then there's also, you get to uh, use all the leisure facilities in Trebalgan. So you can go to the swimming pool, you can go to the private beach, Busca Baja Mobile Sun is set up there. And then you have your outdoor um, music festival uh, happening as well. So you've, unlike the people playing are deadly. So you've got like John Francis Flynn, by the way, John Francis Flynn's album, it's out on the folk imprint of Rough Trade. Check that out. Strange Boy, amazing rapper from Limerick. Uh, you've got Gemma Dunleavy playing. You've got Nilo. Um, who else? Cormac Begley playing. Ethan Asa Francis. You've got Fish Go Deep. Blind Boys doing the podcast down there. There's just loads of stuff um, across Trad and, and um, Stevie G is playing. Ethan Akan and Dandelion. Like, it kind of covers everything. So, uh, yeah, it takes a village. Check that out if you want your festival buzz. That sounds like an absolute buzz. Yeah, so um, it's 189 euros. Um, With accommodation. That's the, that's the early bird. Yeah. 
So that includes, the ticket price includes three nights accommodation in a self-catering house and a weekend festival ticket and private parking. That's banana ten. But we no private parking, pool. No private parking, no. Um, so yeah, check that out. It takes a village.fm. I think a lot of people will be uh, interested in that vibe. Mm-hmm. And those are my fave bits. Uh, this podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan and Castaway Media. Crystal Clear gave us his chin chicken roll for our soundtrack. Sarah Fox did all of our design. What's the tuna chicken roll this week? Actually, can we do a little shout out to our listeners? Because loads of people have been giving us loads of fi- feedback. Shout out to Fergal, who really enjoyed all of our Dublin Bay South coverage. Um, he's off to, uh, he's finished his final year exams and he's off to college this autumn. And he really enjoyed our uh, Dublin Bay South coverage. Shout out to Paul McAvoy. Shout out to uh, who else has been dropping us messages about things. Loads of you have, and we've kind of neglected um, mentioning them. But suffice to say that you all love us and we love you. So very, thanks. Very Marty Whelan link there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Okay, what's the TCR? Uh, so basically, I was going through my emails for something last night and I came across the set list from Dublin Street's Oxygen set in July 2010. A legendary set. Uh, it was, it, I've made it into a Spotify playlist if anyone should like to avail of it. Um, but one song that's missing from the playlist on Spotify is... DJ Falcon and Thomas Bang, Bang, Bangalter, as I call him, Bangalore as together because it's not on Spotify, which is really upsetting. But it's such a tuna chicken roll. And every time I hear it, I'm, I'm reminded of it because I don't hear things very often outside of Spotify. And I just absolutely adore it. And it's so stunning. It's the epitome of a tuna chicken roll. Excellent. I've been Una Malali. I've been Andrea Horan. This has been United Ireland. And that was Climate Revolution. Now! A time has come to make a decision. Are we in this thing alone? Or are we in it together? <laughs>